Kate, welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So you first. What is astonishing you Listen, this Listen, I have got um, a great thing to share, and we talked about it on the walk, but we had two people join our church on Sunday, not our church, the Lord's Church on Sunday, and, you know, in this season, it, that's such a... A blessing because you know so many things are just raggedy right now, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah. so that the Lord would bring these two incredible people who recently moved to Charlotte from Madison, Wisconsin, Brenda and Ed. They are a recently retired couple, and they come to us from uh, the Baptist tradition. They are wonderful, deeply spiritual people who love Jesus and. You know, I feel a little intimidated because I don't know if I'm good enough to be their pastor because they, they are really wonderful. But I get this sense that um, this may be the beginning of what the Lord wants to do in the life of Dorada Church as we continue to walk this hard, challenging way of faithfulness in this season in which many of our beloved brothers and sisters, you know, they disagree, sometimes leave. And so it's hard. And so to have this wonderful moment in worship, you know, I give um, an invitation most Sundays. And on most Sundays, it's just kind of this thing we do where we invite anyone who wants to join or anyone who wants to become a follower of Jesus to come forward and often no one comes. And so I think, you know, for many people, it's like, okay, this is the thing before the benediction. Let's do it and so we can go. And immediately, I mean, I don't think, you know, five seconds passed after giving the invitation. And these two people were sitting in the back and they were coming up the aisle. And I could feel the energy in the room shift. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. And uh, it really was just delightful. And I gave them an opportunity to share anything they wanted to share with the congregation before the benediction. I handed them the microphone and, you know, they just shared how the Lord brought them to one, North Carolina, two, to our community and two, uh, to the congregation. Um, Little, little. um, Well, let me say it for you. (laughs) Let me say it for you, because what I love about this story is, I mean, just the gift, the sheer grace and gift of people saying, I sense that the Lord has called me here and the Lord is here and God is doing That's something. wonderful and beautiful. Having that affirmation, like it's just, yeah. And, and the day that we stop taking off our shoes and just being mar- marveling at that is, is, is the day we need to be done. Um, but two things that I think is just important to notice beyond like, hey, good day, is that there are um, two, potentially three lies that are very common in the branch of the body of Christ that is us, which is the PCUSA church, um, lies that we tell ourselves to kind of excuse ourselves from doing what is difficult and unfamiliar and uncomfortable. Um, so the first thing that is true is they found your congregation through 
um, YouTube. They started worshiping with you during the pandemic. And I think like making this move to being present in the virtual world is very, very difficult. And for most people in mainline denominations, and I mean, specifically, we can speak to the PCUSA and we can speak to people our age. So people, maybe it's different in seminaries right now. Doubt it, (laughs) but maybe it is. But no, it's not. Um, We were not trained to think about being present in the virtual world. And so one of the lies that we tell ourselves in our community is anything that we don't already know how to do is something that doesn't need to be done. Mm. And we... Um, we put a theological cover on it and we say like, oh, we're not interested in virtual fake community. No, the gospel is embodied and you got to be in the body and it has to be real community and people who are obsessed with, they're just obsessed with their ego and clicks and hits and that's all fake, but we're real here. So we're not doing that and we're not going to be distracted by it. We're going to be real. And, and so we tell ourselves that it's not, that we don't need to do it, that it's almost unfaithful to do it yes. and that it won't work. Like, like even if we invested all of that money, it wouldn't make any difference because that's not the way, you know. So I'm just grateful that not only this that these folks are here, but that they're saying, like, if you're telling yourselves those lies, Jesus still loves you and God will still work through your church. But it, those are lies. And just because we don't know how to do something, just because it's not familiar, just because we're not good at it, that does not mean that the Lord won't use it to grow our congregations. And I just think it's interesting that like as spiritual leaders, if we just reject what is hard and unfamiliar and uncomfortable that we're beginners at, then why, why do we expect people in our congregation? Like, why do we get so frustrated with them when they reject and resist learning to think or be in a new way. So A, they came because you were faithful to get your service up on YouTube during a time when it was hard, Mm -hmm. when it seemed like it didn't make a difference, and when there was not just indifference, but active resistance to it in your community. That people in your community are saying, you're our pastor, why are you wasting your time doing all of that? And telling you, like, it's just about your ego, and and you should be pastoring us. And it wasn't very good. And it wasn't very good, right? And so that's the other thing, is like, like, some churches will say, like, well, we are a church with a multi-million dollar budget, so we'll do it because we can invest and hire a professional. Guess what? God doesn't need professionals. And so I think like 20 years ago, fair enough that people thought like, I can't do that because there was no YouTube. There was no Instagram. There was no Facebook. Like you, there was no Canva. There was no MailChimp. It was hard to do those things and they were expensive. Now they're free and you can figure it out yourself and you can watch YouTube videos. And so if you're unwilling to do it, that's fine. But, you know, it don't be mad when you're just, you have a whole field of ministry that you are just refusing to labor in. So, A, there's that. B, you said on the walk that, um, the, what are their names again? Brenda and Ed. Ed. So you said, like, the cool thing is that Ed looks like my dad. Yeah. Um, so Ed and Brenda are black. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the lies that we tell ourselves in historically white churches in the PCUSA is, well, black people will never join our congregation. Like we, a, a historically white congregation can never become diverse. It can't happen. Won't happen. Like those people won't ever want to be a part of our congregations. So we don't need to waste our time bothering. We are who we are. 
So we don't need to think about, like, we just don't need, it's not possible. It's not possible, which means we're not responsible. We're not responsible. Um, mm -hmm. It's a lie. I know it's a lie. You know it's a lie. It's just a lie. Mm -hmm. So make the choice that you want to make. You know church is going to become diverse by accident. No church is going to become multi-ethnic spontaneously. And if you decide that you want to become a multi-ethnic community, that is going to cost you something. There will be a real opportunity cost and probably a real human cost to mm -hmm. that choice. It will cost you something. So if you're not called to do that, or if you just don't feel like you can pay that price for whatever reason, like that's fine. But be honest about that. Don't say, well, it's not possible because it is possible. And like people are like, well, you can't do it because nobody wants to be the first one. That's just not true. That's not true. So again, like what I appreciate is this, um, that, that I'm just grateful that the Lord sent these people to your congregation. Um, and I'm grateful that the way they came exposed the lies that we tell ourselves in the PCUSA to sort of, um, anesthetize our mm -hmm. souls to borrow Paul Farmer's phrase to say like, well, things are wrong, but you know, it's above my pay grade. It's not my fault. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just not going to think about things that make me uncomfortable. So yeah, I think it's amazing. And they came because they said like, I we're it's the preaching of the pastor. Like that was what really drew us here. That was nice. Um, that was, that's what's feeding us. And I think a lot of times there's just pressure and I think this, I think, is probably pressure that we as pastors put on ourselves that, like, we should be able to dash off a sermon in 30 minutes on a Saturday morning and spend the most of our time, like, doing, like, the visible work of the church. Um, and, you know, and the reality is, I mean, preaching isn't everybody's main thing, and that's fine. And we were talking on the walk about how, like, regardless of, I mean, the Lord works through all kinds of vessels. So, you know, the, it is the gospel. It is the message that changes life, not the messenger. But, but also if preaching is one of your gifts, you, you can spend time into doing the thing you do the best really well and not just coasting and trying to like spend a lot of time getting better at the things you do the worst at. Right. And so like they came because you're preaching really called to them and ministered to them. And that's really important. And let's be very clear. There are many, many, many gifted preachers in this city. And just on our street, just in our little corner of the city, I can name preachers that can preach circles around me. So once again, this just says... This is all about God, not about us. Right. And the Lord is using our faithful efforts to well, do what the church grows by God the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And the Holy Spirit is like the wind. And so you don't get to I mean, you don't know where it's coming from, you don't know mm -hmm. where the source of it is, and you just can't you I mean, whatever. This is not a comment on renewable energy, but like you can't harness it and control it. The metaphor breaks down, okay? Don't <laughs> at me about climate change. I'm just saying, like, I think that Jesus was using a metaphor to help us understand our spirituality, that, like, yes. we don't, we this is not a factory. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not producing or even consuming. Like, we're just not in control. And so our job is to show up every day and be faithful, as faithful as we can be, trusting that God is good and that any gift we give to God 
with sincere and grateful hearts is going to be received and treasured by God and then just letting it go bread on the waters. And so, um, yeah, like people come to our communities, not when they're perfect, but when they are imperfect and people are there, not because we're so great because we're not, but because God calls people and honestly, like there, there, I suppose was a time in American history where people did like shop for the best church in town. And I just think we're not doing that so much anymore. So we don't have to be competing to be the best church anymore. And the reality is if somebody picks your church, cause it's the best church in town, they're probably not yet mature enough to understand what it means to be part of not just your church, but the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's great. And I really both identify with that imposter syndrome thing of like, oh, I can't like these people. Cause we were saying on the walk, like we feel somewhat comfortable, like not, not, we don't take it for granted and we're not casual about it, but like, you feel like there's a familiarity, right? Like I know that if a person who comes from the Presbyterian tradition and they come to this church and I was trained, I mean, by the Methodist, but by the Presbyterians, like I know that I can give them a good version of what they expect. You feel confident that you can meet their expectations. Right. Because that's what I've been trained to do. And there's this mutually agreed upon, you know, sort of God adjacent culture that we all know how to navigate. And I think when people from other parts of the body of Christ comes come in, what is great is they for real, for real have gifts and wisdom and experience that we don't have. So yes. there's spiritual cross-pollination going mm-hmm. on, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it makes our life bigger than being a good Presbyterian church, which is like really low-hanging and unsatisfying fruit, um, but that we really get to say, like, no, we are part of the body of Christ, which is also the goodness of being a multi-ethnic church is because you just realize, like, whoa, I'm not in charge. Like, I'm vulnerable. Like, you know, so I just think that that is all to the good. And to be astonished at, like, oh, gosh, these lies that felt so inevitable and, and, and authoritative and, and that you felt like you almost feel like you're doing something wrong when you push back against them. Like, no, this moment is, is the, um, is the exposing of those lies and this practice that you have every week of inviting folks to make a profession of faith and join the church. And most weeks, that's just a moment of real vulnerability <laughs> that you just are like, okay. You know, and so we're taught like don't do things unless they're going to look good, right? So don't don't invite people to join the church unless you know people are going to stand up and say yes, right? Which is why in typical Presbyterian fashion, you only invite people to join the church on the day that you've already been talking with people and training them, and you know they're going to walk up front, right? And this idea of saying like no, every week we open the doors of the church, and every week we open the doors of salvation, and most weeks people are not going to step through them. And that's okay. That's what makes it real. Yes, and I even say something like, because it's truly an invitation to everyone in the room, and so I say something like, perhaps you have been a part of this community for a long time. Perhaps you're, you've served on various boards, or you know, you've been here for a long time, and today is the day you realize that you are coming to faith, for real, right. for real, 
in Jesus. There is no shame in this moment, you know, to step out and come. And I know that is not typical of what we do because we we just assume that if someone is on the role, we assume if someone is serving the position that they are at a certain place. And um, I don't want to take for granted that perhaps someone in the community could be having a spiritual experience, not that we expect um, people to get converted over and over again, like some right. communities, right? Um, but but also, I mean, is that really so ridiculous? I mean, if you if you just step back from your ego and your pride mm-hmm. and your gross elitism, I mean, like, is it a, a less ridiculous theological perspective to say you're going to have one conversion experience when you're 18 or when you're 29, and then after that, you, you're good? Like, you are never going to cross another threshold of decision for Jesus in your entire life? Like, you're never going to hit a point where you realize, like, oh, I've been holding back. Let me take a step in deeper. Like, I just think that's su- – like, we make fun of that in mm-hmm. the mainline church because that's our insecurity talking – but I mean, if you even take the actual Bible seriously, like when Jesus showed up to the fishermen and said, like, come and follow me. And in that moment, when they left their boats and followed him, like that was a conversion moment, right? And then also there was another moment when they were still in process, still in this journey, still belong, but they fell away. And so there's another conversion moment aft on the other side of the resurrection when, you know, the feed my sheep and feed my sheep and feed my sheep moment when Jesus, when Peter is emblematic here is recommitting to Jesus. And so like, we don't like that because like we were saying on the walk, we have these binary minds and we want to say like, okay, well that was the real conversion. And the other one was not real, but like, no, they were both real. Right. I mean that you don't get to the breakfast on the beach conversion without having the authentic leave all things behind and follow me. And I think the life of faith that is really humbling, which is our power is our humility is when we discover like, I thought I was all in and there was more and my ego won't allow me to pretend like, no, I'm already good. Like there's still more goodness. There's still more surrender. There's still more dying to self for us to have to uh, for a lifetime. And who's the chump, the person who resurrenders every week or the person who thinks like, nah, I did that yeah. 45 <laughs> years ago yeah. and I've been good ever I'm since. Good. Like you're a liar. Yeah. I know you're a liar and like, I'm a liar too. So no judgment, but I'm just saying like, that's what makes me so mad. (laughs) Before we started talking, Yolanda was like, you need to talk louder. And I'm like, can't you turn up the mic? And he's like, just never mind, Cause I know you're going to get heated. So like, I like, but I would just say like, I'm heated cause that's what the, the, like what these are my people. I am them. They are me. So this is from whence my anger. Oh, this is going to be good. No, I just like, that's what makes me mad about the PCUSA mm-hmm. is that there's this thing in the culture of like, we do it best. We know best. You know, if you like this, fi- like this kind of almost like pity, like we're not saying that our way is the only way. We're just kind of saying that it's the best way. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I hate it so much because I don't think that the Presbyterian way is the worst way. And I certainly don't think that like God is in it and it has gifts, but like, I just like the grossness 
of making fun of contemporary Christian music. And that we have or making, nothing to learn. Right, or making fun of people who would do an altar call. Or mm-hmm. like, are your points about how it can get manipulated sometimes, manipulative, right? Is uh, Sure, you're right. And also, our way sucks too, right? Like, it's just so easy to see the specs in other traditions and overlook the log of you-know-what in our tradition. Yeah, we don't do it every week, do this every week, but I would like to get to the place where we really do that altar call in three movements. The first movement uh, is something like, if you're here this morning and you have some kind of need, let's say we've preached about um, grief. Mm-hmm. If you're grieving, there are people over here on you know up front, they want to pray with you. So if, if you would come, that's movement number one. Movement number two, if you are here today and you're coming to faith in Jesus Christ, you want to renew your faith in Jesus Christ, come. Third movement, you may be here and you're already a believer and you are looking for a church home, you come. Right. And so trying to hit all of those groups, and um, that's something that we're not trained to do. Like our training yeah. is sermon, prayer, maybe a song, benediction, well, it's over. And our training, our understanding of the Christian life. And I'm not saying that this isn't a Christian life. I'm not saying it isn't a Christian life. But but because, oh, I'm just going to say it, because Presbyterianism is so inextricably tw- intertwined with white supremacy, we are trained to see our culture as the default norm standard and everything else is other right? Exotic mm-hmm. other, right? And that is even in the context of the way that we we do Christianity. And so we are trained that the, the way people become believers is they're born into a Christian family. Mm-hmm. So they get baptized when they're an infant, they get confirmed at whatever age. And, you know, and then we've made our peace with the fact that like, oh, they leave in college and then they come back then when they, they have back. kids. <laughs> they come back when they get whatever. But like, we think that that's the way. So we don't, so if that's your way, then an altar call doesn't make sense because everybody in the room is there because they already believe, right? And what we're doing every week is just like a tune-up. So, I mean, but A, that is just biblically problematic. What also doesn't make sense in that um, construction is the mission to go and make disciples. Well, right, which is why that doesn't have a place in the extant culture of the PCUSA, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know what to do with that. So what we do most recently is just say, no, what that means is start philanthropic NGOs in other countries and have mission coworkers there, right? Mm -hmm. Like we don't, we, but I, I would also just say like what I think is helpful about that moment, regardless of whether or not, you know, regardless of what you see, is what that moment every week or most weeks of a like decision, what it does that you can't see is it like disturbs in a great way and makes uncomfortable in a great way every single person in the room because every single person in the room who hears that has to say, is this for me? And just that question of asking instead of assuming like, you know, because I think a lot of times, like the the default culture is like because I showed up, because I'm sitting here, that means I'm that means I'm where I'm I need to be. I'm good. I you know, and so that idea of like, great, you're sitting here, like, great for real, 
great. Not like, I'm so glad you're here. Yes, like, I'm, in fact, like desperately, <laughs> unhealthily longing for you to be here. But just because you're here, that doesn't mean that you are being responsive to what God is doing in your life, right? So being here, and I don't say that in a sense of like, God might secretly be really mad at you. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like, church is not the end. Mm. Worship is not even the end. It's the means to an end of this wild, free, joyful, abundant life in Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So so when we ask that question, we force everyone to say like, is that idea of like, is today the day? Like that's a very, you know, that Jesus talks like that, right? Like yes. the hour has come. Yes. So basically what you're saying to everyone every Sunday or most Sundays is like, the hour is upon us. And that is an eschatolog eschatological, eschatological, eschatological. <laughs> scatological <laughs> is the word that was in my head, which is not what it is. Eschatological question that we should be wrestling with every week. Like yes. what this is an out, this is the hour in my life, my one short life that I am living in light of eternity. Like what, what decision am I making in this hour? And so it's not a matter of has God decided for me? God has decided for me. But it is perpetually a, a, a matter of, am I deciding for God? So I love all of that. And I love just what it, what it sees. I feel like that's like the whole podcast. <laughs> so what's astonishing you? Um, well, I'll tell you what. I was going to say something else, but I will say this instead. Um, I um, am reading many books, most of which are on this table, um, and I just flipped open this book, um, which is by Richard Rohr, who is the, like, you know how your favorite is N.T. Wright? Like, if anybody doesn't know what to buy Yolando for Christmas, it's anything by N.T. Wright. Wright. Any book, yes. like, if somebody could buy him a t-shirt, like, just N.T. Wright. <laughs> if somebody, you know how, like, celebrities, like, for $500, you can get Justin Bieber to, like, record a message and say, like, happy birthday to your six-year-old? Holy cow. If somebody oh really my. wanted to make Yolanda happy, if, like, somebody could pay N.T. Wright however many dollars so that he would look into a camera and be like, Yolanda, good guy. <laughs> Grateful that you're on the team. <laughs> like, I listen to your sermon. <laughs> I don't know. That's like my, yeah, that's a terrible. Say, I was going to say, what accent is that? That's a terrible accent. I don't, that's why I only try accents of white people. But, um, but if someone but, could do that. But you're pointing to something really, that's very true. Yes. Because Yolando I'm, I'm stands I am a fan. for N.T. Wright. And um, my friend Elizabeth stands for Richard Rohr. And so I have this book, just this, which either I either ordered it because she told me to or she just gave it to me. And I was, um, looking at part of it and um the very first verse that he highlights I just am I, I was reading it this morning and just really was astonished at it hmm. and I'm so it's from Isaiah 65 verse 1 and it has a context and I am intentionally and mindfully taking it out of context I'm saying like I don't know what the context of it is but I think sometimes I get so interested in the context that I just miss Got it. The revelation of the whole world. So this is God speaking, saying, I am ready to be approached by those who do not study me, ready to be found by those who do not seek me. I say, I am here, I am here to people who do not even invoke my name. And I was so 
just struck by that this morning. I mean, as I sat down, honestly, to try and intentionally study God as a path to discipline, which is good and healthy for me. And also just to recognize that like God is not um, a laboratory specimen Mm. (laughs) and and there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's something, there's so much that is so very right about loving the Lord with all your mind. Um, and also, and there's so much that's right about being people who get to unpack the word and unpack the revelation and the context and the history and the tradition for people. And also just this awareness that God can be known and found by people who are not trying to study God. And again, not dissing the study of theology or biblical theology or, or any of that, but just to say it's not it's not God is alive and wild and free and rejecting all our categories. And I suppose like much in connection to the conversation we were just having about the new members and the altar call, like God is calling people who are not seeking him, right? Like, so we are so, I mean, on our best days, so desperately seeking God um, and rejoicing in the grace when that is found. And also people find God when they're not seeking him. And that is just something that if we're wise and we're really trying to know God, then like lump it, like that's how God is. And that God is constantly reaching out and saying, I am here and I am here to people who do not cry out on the name of the Lord. And again, if we want God not to be our mascot, but if what we are saying is, I want to worship the living God who is not alive referential to me, then yeah, like God is not our mascot and God does not play for our team. And so like the gift of grace is that we are invited to be part of what God is doing in the world. And what God is doing in the world is allowing himself to be found by people who aren't seeking him and, and shouting out, um, I'm here, I'm I'm here." here to people who are not invoking God's name and wise followers of Jesus, like, I mean, first know it, second, accept it. And then third, revel in it. Right. And so I think like, do I want to keep studying God? I mean, uh, for a whole lifetime. Um, and also do I want to keep being aware that there are just things that come by pure revelation and people who show up without the identity categories that we expect or people we encounter in other spaces that aren't one of the categories that we recognize as one of our own, that, that we should, if we take our own scripture seriously, then we should not be surprised to find out that these people are in relationship with God and that some of these people are in deeper and truer relationship with God than we are. And that, and God told us that, right? And anyway, so. Well, that reminds me, you know, I'm very grateful for tools given by way of seminary training, learning Greek and Hebrew, theology, all the good stuff that you named a few moments ago. Um, but I, I remember, you know, in various preaching classes, um, being told, you know, one of the things you need to do early on, like you read the text and then you need to listen, like actually listen and you, your own soul needs to respond to the text and I fell into the habit for a long time of preparing to preach by reading the scripture and then immediately pulling out my Greek right. and Hebrew tools and going to commentaries. And I find that my preaching is better, more impactful when I read the text and then just sit back in the chair 
mm-hmm. and just think about what I just read without, you know, um, Without, without the finding laboratory, out what the is in T right thing, yes. right? Yeah. Without mm-hmm. going to this or that commentary. Because I do, you know, I mean, whatever. I love to go to the library and spend a bunch of time sort of having unprovoked fights with the people who got invited to write the commentaries. But, and it helps me. Like, and, and so many times I just, I see like, oh, I did not see that. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't have known that. I couldn't have discovered that on my own. Like this is so rich. And also then to recognize like God is no respecter of persons. So sometimes the person who sees something that nobody else sees is me. And who am I? Like yeah. absolutely nobody, but that's what God does. Right. And so I think, um, it's not either or it's both. And, but I, 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 a friend who I'd never seen anymore. So, um, but her name is Shelly Latham and she's a pastor in Atlanta. And I remember when we were associate pastors, when we were real around each other a lot friend and, um, she would say like, oh, I can't read commentaries until I'm, until I'm really far along because otherwise I'll preach somebody else's sermon. And at the time, I just had such a mistrust of, like I had such a reverence for the academy that I was like, oh gosh, like I wouldn't dare to think about what I think about this text without first going to the authorities to tell me what I'm allowed to think. So like, let me read Augustine, let me read whoever, let me read Brueggemann, let me read, I mean, the people I like, but let me go find out what I'm allowed to think and then I'll decide what I think about it. And so I think you get deeper into um, maturity and then with great humility, you say, wait, and, and, and I think your eyes get opened wider to the structures of this world and you recognize that yes, people in these positions of authority are formed by God and do know things. And also they are also formed by the structures. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that they are going to of necessity be blinded to because they're in a place of authority. And so that doesn't mean their words are worthless. It just means that they don't automatically get to draw the boundaries of my thought world with God. Yeah. If you read commentaries from the sixties and seventies, they are filled with illustrations of the noble white missionary going to the South Pacific or Africa and, you know, the, you know, all, all the dangers they endure to take the gospel. To colonize. Like, I mean, there's yes. just this blatant uh. celebration of colonization because that's the, I mean, that is explicitly what everyone was taught was, you know, civilization came from one place and then on great generosity and risk, a great personal risk, people brought civilization other places and, you know, whatever, what was left out of that could fill the universe, but, you know, great risk and also profit, Mm -hmm. but whatever. I mean, and people should read, if you want to read, if you, if you want to uh, take the red pill or the blue pill or whichever one it is, like, you, if you read Stamped from the beginning, which is just brilliant, and the ways that the gospel has explicitly been manipulated to support the economic model of colonization. And so all this time that we were learning about the gospel from these um, revered sources of authority, and I'm talking about Wesley, I'm talking about Calvin, I'm talking about like all the the big ones who we're taught to wear ironically on our t-shirts, like they, one of their explicit goals was to help people understand how colonization, the economic model of colonization was 
good. And, and even, even abolitionists, <laughs> um, even people who were saying like chattel slavery itself was evil, still saw the world through this default unconscious setting of Western civilization is, is the pinnacle to which everyone else, um, you know, should, should achieve. And so some people thought it wasn't possible for those they labeled others. Other people thought like, no, 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 I believe in them. They can get to where we are. But I mean, I'm just saying like, it was a, it was gross and it, and it did not empty the value of the sincere faith life of people who were struggling to follow Jesus, but it did give them huge blind spots. Um, and also the Lord is gracious and uses sin filled and sin soaked people to be vehicles of his glory. So also yeah, which means, of course, they're not trash, but that means we have to do some work. It means, ironically, for people who pride themselves on being critical thinkers, we have to be critical thinkers not just about other people's traditions, but also yes. our yes. own, which is the deep irony. Like, because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm sure I've even talked about it on the podcast before. Like, the, the seminary I went to taught me that there's like, you know, there's acceptable publishers to read. And then there's unacceptable publishers yes. to read. At the same time, they were teaching me to have pride in my, like, why were some publishers acceptable than others? Oh, because those publishers and publishing houses, you know, they they value critical thinking. So don't even read those other people because they're all, like, just papsed and garbage. And I'm like, it's so interesting that the thing that sets us apart is our critical thinking skills. And yet the one thing you don't want me to do is apply my critical thinking skills to those that you've decided are not using them. And like, whatever. This is, we've gone like all the way around the rabbit hill today. That's what we do. <laughs> this is what we do. So what are you thinking well, about? I was, was going to ask you the same. I what do you think? first. I know what you're thinking Listen, about because I planted a seed. Yes, you did. I am thinking about... Josh McDowell, for those who do not know. I feel kind of guilty because you did not know. Like this I did not know this story, screen. but I read a couple articles because you um, suggested that um, there is a story here. And holy cow, there is a story. Josh McDowell is an apologist. He's been around for a long time. He wrote a book, I believe it but was a in the, real long time. He's a long 80. time. Yeah. He, I think his, he wrote a book either in the 70s or. or or early 80s, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It was a bestseller uh, back in the early days of my Christian life. That is, when I was a teenager, I owned a copy and and maybe still have that copy somewhere in a box in storage somewhere. Um, Just a really popular um, author, um, uh, conference speaker. Um, I think he was also heavily involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. No, Um, no, like... He's still. He's still. Which now yes. we don't call Campus Crusade it's anymore. It's called Crew. It's called Crew. Because somebody, like in a really embarrassingly recent moment, realized that maybe the Crusades were not the metaphor we wanted to self-identify with. And so now it's called Crew. But it is Campus Crusades. Yes. Well, Josh McDowell, who is in his 80s, was recently speaking at a conference for Wait, Christian counselors. Can I just pause yes. for one more minute? Can I just say, because I just feel like it needs to be said, well, we were watching Saturday Night Live last week. I mean, not together, but we were watching Saturday Night Live because sometimes that's what preachers do on Saturday <laughs> nights when they should be finishing their sermons. And there was this like sketch about a school board meeting, which I was watching it and being like, oh my gosh, 
I was at that meeting, but there was a sketch about the school board meeting. And one of the jokes they made, which is so true, is that they were renaming schools. <laughs> they were like, so the former Robert E. Lee Middle School is now Robert E. Lee was bad <laughs> middle school, which is awesome. And I just think it would be helpful instead of rebranding Campus Crusaders to crew, it would be better if we rebranded a the Crusades were bad yeah, <laughs> ministry, right? Go. Like, I mean, just like, this isn't like a shift. Like part of what would be helpful would just be able to say like, actually, we don't want to use this metaphor because our eyes have been open to the fact that killing people or threatening people to convert unless or die or like taking all their shit and then saying like, you're welcome. Here's the gospel. <laughs> like that was not... That was not a faithful move, and it's not something that we want to be associated with with our evangelistic experts right efforts right now. So we're actually gonna like not not shamefully but proudly say like we used to be that and now we're this and here's why and we're not gonna bury that because we actually think that's a huge part of our our thing. So, but it's amazing how long Christians used the idea of a crusade to talk about. Um, evangelistic efforts. Well, and I think it is only amazing because we've been taught not to see colonization, right? Like that, that, I mean, why did the crusades work? Because they were a factor of colonization. That's why everybody thought they were a good idea. And like, we can't, I mean, that's why I really do think that, I mean, this is not, this, everyone thinks this, um, that the work of decolonization is the work. I mean, it, it should have been the work of all the generations, but like the time, the day is now, right? So we have to just look at the ways that we, we have integrated these two, that the wheat and the tares, right? Like it's not, I'm not talking about canceling people. I'm not talking about throwing it away like garbage, but like if you can actually see a weed and you can remove it, I mean, without getting rid of the wheat, then like we should do that and not just, that was about people, not ideas, right? So anyway, that's Campus Crusade, and Josh McDowell is a huge part of that organization yes. and still is, and I think it's relevant to bring that up is to say, like, this is how that organization is trying to address some of its own history, which is to say, to, like, rebrand it as opposed to saying, like, whoa, 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 I'm kind of horrified that not only did I not think this was a problem, but I was proud of this. Um, and so I think that that, what the story you're about to tell makes sense in the context of an organization when that is its name Absolutely. and it's renaming. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Josh McDowell was recently speaking at a conference for Christian counselors and he was giving a speech entitled, uh, five epidemics, uh, the five greatest, five biggest epidemics in the world, currently in the world. Right and then this is the time to state the obvious and say that Josh McDowell is a white man. Yes. Okay. And um, how odd that in this talk, the five greatest epidemics in the world, the first thing he would name is CRT, critical race theory. And and this is in light of, of Pastor John MacArthur saying, that critical race, who is also, I think, about 80, that critical race theory is the greatest challenge to the church in his entire lifetime. Not Jim Crow, not racism in America, but critical race theory. 
So, um, so Josh McDowell was giving this talk at this conference named Critical Race Theory as one of the greatest epidemics the world is facing right now. And that is all kinds of wrong and offensive that aside, and, and the people there did not respond to that. They didn't have a negative response. That crowd would have um, most likely agreed with that. Right. And let me just, before you get to the really offensive, let me just unpack a few things for people who, because one thing we want to do is like help bring people mm-hmm. along who are interested, but are like, I'm confused. And like, why is this such? So, so two things. The reason I pointed out that Josh McDowell was white a minute ago is not because there's anything wrong with being white. It is that someone could not be 80 years old and have gotten to that place and had been a formative voice in that institution for all that time, unless they were a white man, right? So so that that is what is... So when I'm pointing out that he is a white man and when I'm saying it with some sarcasm in my voice, what I'm trying... Let me just say what I'm trying to say. He has risen to a place of power and authority in an institution that only allowed, explicitly only allowed white men to be leaders. So he became a leader at a time when that was a given. Like nobody was Mm -hmm. offended by it. Nobody was arguing about it. Like people were explicitly teaching the curse of Ham. People were teaching God is a hierarchy, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Life is a hierarchy. White men white men, white women, black men, black women, Americans, everyone else. Like the hierarchy Mm -hmm. was not something that anybody had a theological problem with. In fact, they thought that faithfulness to God was all about reinforcing that hierarchy. So ironically, what they have done is kind of reimposed Greco-Roman culture on the gospel, which is deeply ironic because what Jesus was trying to do was blow that culture up, right? So, So it's just demonic, right? And and to point out, and again, we haven't even gotten to the offensive thing that he said yet, but when he starts out by saying like the most, and in, in the other dude as well, when they say the biggest threat to the church right now, and the other boyfriend says in the whole church in my life is critical race theory, what they're saying is, and this is just astonishing, what they're saying is racism is not the problem. But talking, talking about racism is the problem. So you're talking about it wrong. And I'm really angry about the way you're talking about it. The actual thing you're talking about is fine. It's inevitable. I don't care. Doesn't affect me. I mean, it's really what they're saying. And, And again and again, what most white people are angry about is that critical race theory is asking people to see the way that racism has shaped every institution in America, which people of color already do. And white people are like, I don't like to think about this. I don't like to be aware of how racism, race is a factor of every part of life. That makes me feel uncomfortable and sad and frustrated and overwhelmed. And I would just want to say like, that's true. That's true. It is hard. It is discouraging. It is sad. It is uncomfortable. It provokes feelings of guilt and shame. And it's just important to note that like, we're talking about just thinking about it and people of color have been living it. And you know who wants to think about race less than white people? Black people, right? Because Uh, when black people are thinking about race, they're thinking about how how, to navigate, right? Like how not to get killed by the police. Mm -hmm. How am I going to get my house appraised properly? And how, what do I need to do to make sure that I don't end up, you know, having 60, 70, $80,000 less in my 
um, bank account than I would if I were white? Like, how do I make sure that my kid gets to a school and doesn't get like weeded out of the talent and development department because they're like, how do I, I mean, like every single day you're trying to protect yourself from the negative effects of these biases and not biases, like these explicit codes written into the law. And all critical race theory is doing, it's not saying, as people would explicitly lie to you, it is not saying that white people are ontologically bad and there's nothing you can do about it. And people of color are ontologically superior. What what critical race theory is not doing is imposing black supremacy to replace white supremacy. What critical race theory is saying is, let us look at the way that people who were given positions of authority because of their race and gender might have consciously and unconsciously um, made decisions and created structures and laws to perpetuate that hierarchy. So what it is advocating for is not a new hierarchy where white people need to walk around and feel like crap and guilty and terrible their whole lives. What it is saying is what we want is an actual, just and equitable society where all people are treated equally under the eyes of the law, right? So this is not a thing that Christians need to be threatened by or upset about period. And the other thing that people say is critical race theory is a threat to the church because it's, it is a threat to the gospel because critical race theory teaches that white people are terrible and can never be forgiven and never be redeemed. It just doesn't. Critical race theory is not a theology. It is talking about secular structures and it is talking about how we can make these secular structures equitable and accessible to all ethnicities of people. It is not talking about disenfranchising or punishing white people. It just isn't doing that. So the fact that that's the narrative that people superimpose over the top of it, like just because you believe that that's what it is, that doesn't make it true, right? So again, like it's just so revelatory, not about critical race theory, but about the people who are threatened by critical race theory that, yes, that. because in this speech that uh, Josh McDowell gave, he says the problem, <laughs> the biblical theological problem, is that when the Bible talks about sin, it's only talking about individual sin. That's and such a lie. I, listen, I know. <laughs> it, it, it's really quite uh, I, how someone who has written books about defending the Christian faith could say that is astonishing. It's astonishing because if you read the prophets, I mean... Well, listen, uh, the whole exile to Babylon, is a, is God a, was punishing the nation. The nation. It right? is the consequence of the nation. Yes. That, I mean, like... And McDowell was saying the problem with CRT is that, or critical race theory, is that it's looking at systems. And God doesn't look at systems. Sin isn't about systems. Sin is about individual sin. And that's the problem, right? That's all kinds of theologically, theological and biblical nonsense. And to be true, to be, to be clear, the American Christian church has explicit, the white American mainline and evangelical church has explicitly for generations taught that that is all sin is. But that is not the witness of scripture. Correct. Yes. And um, I just realized I got the quote by um, the other pastor. Um, Piper? No. um, The other doom. Yeah. He did not say that CRT was the biggest problem he had faced in his years. He said it was the social justice movement. 
Sure. Which it, that doesn't make it any better. But uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. So all this is all yes. the setup so, to the really offensive thing yes. he said. Josh McDowell then went on to say, and it started out actually not bad. He said, you know, not everyone in this country has the opportunity to advance, succeed. He says, you know, there there are some barriers to certain groups. And um, he named minorities. But then he said, well, you know, black people and other minorities don't have the same opportunities in this country because they grew up in families that did not value education and hard work, and they were not told they could be anything if they just tried hard. What? So, so are you serious? Well, it this reveals number one. Let's just set aside biblical theological nonsense here. It reveals you don't know any black families. Well. T- I mean, you know zero. I mean, every, listen, just sit with some, it doesn't even matter which generation. All of us, every black person I know has a story of how hard their parents were on them to do well, be well, grow, because mom and dad know that this society is hard. There's lots to navigate. And even not only are we right or wrong told you've got to do well, you've got to be better right. just to have a chance to get through the door. I mean, it. not only is Josh McDowell wrong, it is the... the the very opposite is what's true. Right. And I think what is, I mean, some people would say like, well, you don't know if Josh McDowell has any black friends. I'm sure he does have black friends and or, or know some black people. And I would just say a lot of times people in that world will have one or two, you know, people they know who are black, but they see that person as the exception to their blackness. They see that their yeah. lifestyle that they admire as them overcoming their blackness. And if you have black friends who are so enamored with being in proximity to power. white power and white privilege, then, you know, Candace Owen will say anything. Mm-hmm. And and others. But I, I do think that um, this idea, I mean, the analogy that might help people understand is, you know, this is a lot of ways that people talk about sexual violence towards women. People in that same group would say, obviously, I'm not saying she deserved to be raped. She didn't deserve to be raped. It wasn't okay that she was raped. But if she just hadn't but. been drinking and she hadn't been wearing a short skirt and she hadn't been where she was, then she wouldn't have get, gotten raped, right? And so what he's saying is, I'm not saying that discrimination is fair. It isn't fair. But if people would work hard and study hard, they would not be in a place where they could be discriminated against. And so if you are not getting opportunities, it's because you made yourself vulnerable. So, right, so that just becomes, it's a blame the victim mentality, right? And what it really does is say, we as white people, we have no responsibility we have no culpability. We have no need to make amends. We have we can just stay and continue to do exactly what we do. And all the systems work because 
anybody who is disenfranchised by the system, it's their own damn fault. And anybody who is deserving and worthy can work the system as it is. So again, it's just one of those lies. It's like what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast. Like, if you're overwhelmed with the idea of how to have an online presence for your church and somebody comes and tells you that like the whole idea of online ministry is bullshit, that's a great lie to believe in because it means I'm off the hook. I don't have to do what's uncomfortable. I don't have to be a beginner. I don't have to start over. I'm good the way I am without changing. And and that is that is the way that the enemy gets to us all the time is to convince us that the spiritual journey is not necessary. <laughs> and it is. It just is. Yeah. Evangelicalism in America has a deep, deep, deeply rooted racism problem. And the way it's responding to that racism is to say, okay, yes, in the past, maybe we had to, maybe we shouldn't have been advocates for slavery. Yeah, that was, that was kind of wrong. But this current, that's kind right of wrong. Now, but you have to understand the economic system of the time. Absolutely. And you can't judge people back then by the values that we have right now. Like right now, and we, don't need to we talk think about it's it now. bad to take a baby away from its mother. And so, you know, like we wouldn't do that right now. <coughs> but back then, we just didn't know. Like yeah. you can't, I mean, like, come on. It makes me so angry when people with a straight face say, there's no way that any follower of Jesus back then could have known that slavery was evil and brutal. I mean, like, I'm well, sorry. They built a system, a philosophical system, that allowed them to engage in this dehumanizing practice and proclaim the name of Christ at the same time. And that is what's happening now. And what hurts my heart is that there are so many of 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 these brothers and sisters who can who can beautifully and wonderfully talk about proclaim the life death resurrection and soon return of Jesus and yet it it is it's like serving your favorite meal on a dirty trash can lid what 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 comes with it is this racism that is not being dealt with and i'm so concerned that those who are not in that camp, who are also Christians and believers in Jesus, don't do a very good job of talking about why that vision of Christianity is not biblical or theologically correct. Because what those people, part of their power is that they are often and clearly say the bible says right, the and they say, bible we says we are authorities we are yes. the only ones who take the bible seriously we but are the others only do not do that right. others will say okay that's wrong that's wrong we don't believe that but are not clearly connecting um their opposition to, to biblical revelation because yes. i think the reality is you can just say like look believe whatever you want to believe josh but if you're saying like the world as it is is fine as long as we understand Jesus accurately and personally love Jesus and personally trust Jesus, the world as it is God doesn't care about. Like, I mean, you can think that if you want to, but you better not. You better ignore the whole idea of the exile. Like there's a reason well, nobody it, preaches about the exile because the people in Jerusalem and in Israel and in Samaria 
who, who they trusted the Lord. They knew the Lord. They told the story of Moses and the burning bush. They came to worship all the time. They made the sacrifices. They ate kosher. They circumcised their kids. They, they loved the Lord. They did what they were taught, but they ignored the parts of the covenant that were out of step with the authorities of their day. Mm -hmm. They conformed to the world and God called prophets and called them back 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 and delivered them and delivered them and delivered them and delivered them until finally God delivered them into exile because God said, you're not going to continue to profane the name of the Lord in this way. So to say that God doesn't care about systems is to just, you better cut Amos out of the Bible. You better cut Ezekiel out of the Bible. You better cut Jeremiah out of the Bible. You better cut Isaiah out of the Bible. You, I mean, just so many of the prophets, because what they're, what they're saying, like God's judgment upon God's own people is not your worshiping me wrong and you don't understand me theologically correctly and oh yeah by the way I don't want gay marriage and like that put prayer back in school prayer was everywhere okay it was not you deny me so I'm gonna deny it was none of that it was because the people were exploiting the poor mm -hmm. oppressing the widow and the orphan and oppressing the stranger yep. and God will not be mocked and individually were people doing that I mean Sure. And also, were they just participating in the economic structures of their day? For sure. And and God was not okay with it. So if you want to believe that that's an Old Testament God, and now by grace, God doesn't care anymore. I mean, you can think that if you want to, but I'd be a little bit scared. I mean, I let me just be clear. I am a little bit scared because I live in the empire of the 21st century. And the sin of these systems shapes and forms my life in ways that I resist and also in ways that I don't. And so I am crying out for the grace of Jesus in my life and to be part of the transformation work that God is doing. But I also am under no illusions that like God is going to deliver us from sin one way or another. Mm -hmm. And if we can't even talk about like racism and the way it shaped us in the past, but we somehow believe that we've just magically gotten over it in the present and it's all good. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just magical unicorn teapot thinking that has nothing to do with the real and strong and frankly, like terrifying ways that the Bible witnesses to God's anger against the oppressor on behalf of the oppressed, but always you know, saying, but I, I love my people and I'll restore them and there'll be a remnant and the dry bones will be raised up. But I bet the process of going from a living army to a field of dry bones, like I personally would rather circumvent that if at all possible. So. Yeah. I was reading some articles last night about this whole situation with Owl and was trying to think through my response in terms of how to see it big picture. Because at first, I was like, boy, bye. <laughs> get LeVar Burton said to the people who talked about him having a strategy to get uh, thinking that. I'm not going to say that on that podcast because <laughs> I've already accidentally sworn a lot, which I try not to swear ever. I can do better. And I also feel like the only place it's acceptable to swear is when you're talking about issues of injustice. But anyway. There you go. You know, my, my first reaction was, 
ain't nobody got time for this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm busy doing the Lord's work, and I want to make sure that this is not the enemy's rope-a-dope, and I'm getting caught in something that is going to take my time and energy away from the thing that God has called me to do. And so I'm asking myself if, um, you know, you've got McDowell, John MacArthur was the name I couldn't come up with a moment ago. Piper. Um, Piper, uh, Falwell, Liberty, you know, we talked about that last year. Are we in a situation now where you have this generation of men, white men who have been in power, evangelical white men, and they see the generation coming behind them open, listening to women, listening to people of color. Not only that, they are reevaluating the Christianity, the church that they have inherited. And are these men now so alarmed that something is shifting that they are now speaking in the way they are speaking? Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, then I ought not be... um, Well, that that changes my response to a a McDowell. Mm -hmm. It it is not... um, you know, at, at first, kind of an alarm was going off within me, yeah. right? It's like, oh, no, this is danger, danger, warning, warning. And maybe maybe this is a sign that something that needs to die is, is dying. dying. Yeah, I mean, I think about, like, I think we, even as we resist them, sometimes we give too much power and energy. And, you know, that is one thing that the guys that we worked with with transformation consultants would say like what you give your energy to you give your energy to Mm -hmm. and so it gives it energy um because i do think part of it is just about saying like clearly and soberly saying like this isn't so and it matters and and if you are going to say that representing an institution then what i need to do is clearly and soberly with truth and love say that I this institution can no longer be formative or um, fruitful for me in the body of Christ. And, and you know, what I believe in is repentance and renewal and reconciliation. So am I saying never ever in the future? Nope. Am I saying in the past it was? Uh, nope. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, like, if this is the person you choose to speak for you, then I'm listening. And like, there's that Nina Simone quote about like, you got to learn to walk away from the table when love is no longer being served. So just to say like, no, I understand that you think that you're the authority and I understand that you think that you speak for God and you determine who's a believer and who isn't. I don't think that any of us do, but what I do know is what you are selling, I'm not buying. I'm not going to argue with you about it anymore. Like, we don't need institutions to be the body of Christ. And we particularly don't need institutions that were founded whenever, like the Lord is still the Lord and God can do a new thing and God can do a new thing in an old wineskin. I mean, really can, but also (laughs) you can just walk away. Yeah. This issue of racism in America uh, reminds me of you know what you and I wrestle with as pastors leading church transformation. 
you begin to see what's true and how the Lord wants you to lead a group of people in the direction uh, the ministry is supposed to go in, and you start leading in that direction, and some very beloved people get very angry. Mm -hmm. Some leave, mm -hmm. some don't, mm -hmm. but it there is a disruption there. But if you keep being faithful and walking out faithfulness with the help of the Holy Spirit, something very beautiful and powerful begins to shift that is beyond your doing. But God uses the weak, your, your weak faithfulness uh, to make something, some new um, uh, uh, godly thing manifest. And I'm wondering, you know, just as in changing in church transformation, if that's what's happening in the country right now, yeah. that if there, there are some people who are, are angry, but something very beautiful is emerging. Um, well, and I think, I mean, one of the things that I think it's hard and where I can step out of my binary mind and have not sympathy or compassion for the ideas because I reject them uh, uh, completely, but I can have sympathy and compassion for the human is that I can understand that if all of a sudden what we're doing is talking about how these systems that you have risen to a place of prominence and authority in, and we're talking about how these systems were shaped by racism, then that can make you feel like if your identity is in being the leader of the whatever venerable Christian institution, and, and your identity has become not Jesus, but the thing you do for Jesus, and then and then that get, begins to be questioned about like, maybe I'm in the role that I'm in, not simply because I'm in the Lord's anointed, but because I'm in the particular body that I'm in and there's nothing wrong with the body that I'm in. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the body that I'm in. But if the system and the institution has said, I'm not going to discern who's the Lord's anointed to lead us, but I'm going to discern who among these bodies I will, then all of a sudden it just makes you think like, am I where I am because I've earned it and I've deserved it, which to be clear was never the message of the gospel, but was very much the message of America. Like the message of America is this is a meritocracy. So if you're rich and you're powerful, it's because you deserve it, you earn it, you're the best, flaunt it, what, right. That's never been the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is explicitly anti that, right? God chooses the lowest and the dumbest and the worst and the sinfulest, the weakest, the poorest, so that people will know, hey, it's not that idiot, it's God. But because we have superimposed the culture of American meritocracy onto the church, then we now see that, oh, if you are the leader, it's because you were the best. And then if someone says, oh, the institution that you're leading has had some trouble in the past, then you go like, well, maybe I'm not here because I'm the best. And then all of a sudden I have a identity, like it all melts down for me. And I, I can, as a human, really, really have compassion for someone who is saying, my whole life I've thought I had value and worth because I achieved this position and I earned it. And now you're realizing like, well, maybe I didn't. Now in the context of the gospel, I don't have worth because of the work I do. I don't have worth because of the position that I am. In the context of the gospel, I'm a beloved child of God, but I don't have intrinsic worth because I'm a sinner, right? So if I'm really formed by the gospel, discovering that is painful, I'm human, but also I'm like, 
oh gosh, I guess the Bible really is true. <laughs> I guess I really am saved, not because of the value that I have, but because of the value that God has. But if, again, like the devil is a liar. And so if I've been taught that this is what the way of Jesus is, but it really wasn't, like if at this moment I'm realizing that like, oh, it is a narrow gate and I cannot get through it on my own, like that's just a really hard thing to do. And and, and I really can have compassion for someone who who believed the hype struggling yeah and but he still has a lot of damage and we have to be able to say this person is my brother and and this and and this gospel he's preaching is a false gospel and it's destructive and i'm going to renounce it but i don't renounce him Mm -hmm. well i mentioned you and um my friend um genie in the sermon this past sunday um, I was talking about humility, um, preaching that place in Philippians 2. <laughs> Jesus humbled himself, became obedient. And I said, you know, one of the things that humility does is that it builds trust. Part of the problem with many of our congregations, with the neighborhoods they're located in, people just don't trust the church anymore. Why? Because church isn't very humble. And I said, well, I have these two friends, both white. And I said, the, one of the reasons we are friends is because they walk in a certain level of humility when it comes to race and racism. Evangelicalism in America is just not humble. It no. just lacks humility. Therefore. Proudly. Proudly, yes. And therefore, there is this wall. I mean, I repentance is in order and repentance is not some if we are truly wise oh i also said here here's i'm sorry to interrupt you no, but wh- wh- i said what what i appreciate about kate and Jeannie, it's like they don't hate who they are they don't feel like they have to hate who they are to walk in humility when it comes to race and racism and you you've got to you can do both of those things yeah, it's not, i mean repentance is something that we celebrate in the church. It's something we're not ashamed to be repentant. Well, like we were saying about the altar call, we think it's a one time, right? I I repented 20 years ago when I, right. Yeah. Right. Which is why I think, again, Kendi's anti-racism, which I, my thinking about it has evolved on this very podcast. (laughs) The evolution happened when I actually read the text instead of reading about the text, but whatever, draw any conclusions you want to. But I think that that metaphor of anti-racism is a much more, or, or that construct of anti-racism, I mean, whatever people think of it in the secular field is one thing, but I think it's such a more um, theologically helpful framework because that's what I think. Like, we will always be in process, no matter who we are. We will always be in that loop of discovering our sin, turning and walking another way, asking for forgiveness and asking for the grace to overpower it. And all I want to say in response to what you said, and then we have to end, so we'll just end, because I was going to talk about the Pandora Papers, but I can save the rant for that for next week. But I, all I want to say is, number one, I'm the best at humility, so thank you so much for pointing that out. <laughs> um, but number two, I really, like one of the things I noticed in that passage that we preached, which I really um, think is relevant for this, is at that part where um, he says, you know, consider yourselves, have the mind of Christ, and it says, consider every, what, what is it? Like, consider others more highly than, than, yourselves. Your, than yourselves. And I think you pointed out, it's not than yourself. 
Yeah. It's then yourselves. So this is a collective thing. So it's not saying like to, to have humility, you need to walk around and think everybody else in the world is more valuable than me and I'm just a piece of crap and I'm worthless. And I, that, that's not it. What it is about saying is don't consider, it's, it's our collective identity. Consider the people who are not part of your group as 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 highly valued and more valued value them who are outside more highly than you value those who are inside your group and that is just something that the the christian church has explicitly missed the memo gleefully missed the memo on that for generations we've thought that the way that we exalt the lord is to value our in group more than we value the out group and we think that by valuing the people who do not yet know christ highly that we are somehow devaluing christ when in reality that's exactly what jesus did was value the lives of those who who did not know him more highly than he valued his own life right and so to love people unquestionably and and without without regard and to not just like as a duty or an obligation or not to pity love them if that were even possible but to like authentically highly value those not just in your community i mean value those who are in your community for sure but value even more highly those who are outside of your community that's so countercultural it is so attractive i named that on sunday as the growing edge for the church when right. it comes to service we will value our brothers and sisters in our um, church building, right. right? Those we know, but when it comes to those outside, we have a hard time serving them. And we and we sometimes think that we're better because we have Jesus. Absolutely. Instead of understanding, like because we have Jesus, then we are going to have the mindset towards those outside that Jesus had towards us when we were outside, which is holding nothing back and loving them in really costly, beautiful, transformative ways. And we just, but I mean, for me, like that idea of the plural really helps because it's not helpful to tell a believer, okay, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to think of your, you need to think of yourself like crap for the rest of your life. Like that's not what it's saying. It is saying, don't fall into the trap of thinking that because you have Jesus, you're now the spiritual elite that deserves special perks and you're ontologically better than those who don't yet know Jesus. No, guard against that by saying, value them even more highly than you value yourselves. But there's lots of teaching about how we are to value ourselves within the body of Christ. I mean, in that same passage, like, don't think about your own individual needs, but see to the needs of your neighbors, right? Like, it's not that we don't value ourselves, but it's also not that this doesn't become like a weird, gross cult that despises and rejects those who are not part of. Yeah, last week I was watching um, a documentary on the 50th anniversary of Disney. And they were, at one point, they were interviewing a Disney executive who talked about seeing people come out of their various experiences there with tears in their eyes. And then this executive said, what we try to do is to get people to see themselves as part of a story. Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I thought, well, that's it. The story you identify with matters because it shapes you. And if Absolutely. you identify with the story of the God of the universe humbling God's self to become a human being, to die on a cross, to save people in rebellion, that story will shape you. And, and if you say that not as... And if you value it as the wisdom of God and the glory of God, right? Like, And you have to just not see it through the eyes of the world because the eyes of the world says, well... 
that's a chump move, right? You yeah. have to... <laughs> the lie, the illusion is that those with the biggest bank accounts, the biggest guns, the biggest egos, that's what runs the world. Right. And that if you suffer, you are a chump, yeah. right? And that God is saying not just that this was worth it, which is God is saying, but also that that suffering literally mm -hmm. was redemptive so that we believe that suffering for the sake of others, not oppression, because it was a free choice. Mm -hmm. So not oppression, which is another rope-a-dope move that has been made, but suffering for the sake of others, a free choice to lay down your life for the sake of others, even those in rebellion, even those who are enemies, even like that that is redemptive, not just of you, but of them. That's yeah. the gospel story that we believe in. And I we and get really power. excited. And it is. Yeah. So all right, we we have to be done. So thank you all for listening to us. If you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Presbyterian Church, it's D-E-R-I-T-A Pres.org. You can go to the um, podcast, the Jerida Press podcast, which is on Membeam and listen. Podbean. Podbean. Dang it. <laughs> I had not messed that up in so long. Uh, Membeam is a reading app that CMS schools use. Podbean is a podcast app. You can find the Jerida Church podcast on the Podbean app. Uh, and you can um, check out their YouTube channel which is on the YouTube <laughs> to write a press. You can worship the with them on Sunday mornings at 1030. You can also find the whole worship service later. Um, that's spam risk coming in on my phone. Thanks, Steve Jobs. Um, on my computer, whatever. And if you want to find out more about The Grove, please do. <laughs> Our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. Uh, you can worship with us in the sanctuary if you'll wear a mask over your nose and your mouth at 10 a.m. on Sundays. Or you can worship with us online on Facebook at 10. Um, and you can listen to uh, sermons on our YouTube channel. And you can uh, listen to old sermons also on our podcast, which you can find the Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever. wherever. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.